Pontius Pilate of Australia betrays the people. The government's Captain Renault shocked charade over PwC and the Cold War Tyrannosaur influencing the push for war on China. Coming up on this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 8th of June, 2023. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined again today by Citizens Party researcher Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Robbie. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the interest rate rise and the impacts, it, it, the, you know, the crushing blow it is for the Australian people. But the person who could do something about it is refusing to use his power, in fact, wants to give it up. Mm. Um, we're going to talk about an aspect of the don't, PwC scandal, that's actually a charade, and show the evidence of that. Um, and a very interesting dip into Australian history, Richard, that you've done on um, some curious characters from the Cold War who are still having a direct influence today, pushing us to uh, war with China. Um, so that'll be coming up. Before we begin, just remember, help us get this show seen widely as possible, and the way you can do that is like it. Um, click the like button. Subscribe if you're not a subscriber, and if you do subscribe, make sure you hit the bell icon um, so that you're notified of what the, the, all the content we put up, which is always useful. Uh, share it as widely as you, pos- as you possibly can on all your different platforms, emails and, and uh, other social media platforms. And comment. Let's get the discussion going below. It's always really valuable to have that kind of comment and that feedback for us, so we appreciate that. And finally, because... We're always campaigning. Um, we need your help. This is, takes a lot of work, what we do. Um, please consider donating by hitting the donate button below and supporting us in that way. Uh, also, just quickly before we begin, we have a, uh, an, an update of sorts on one of our campaigns, which is the, the regional banking question about banking services in regional Australia, because um, the Treasurer, in his wisdom, um, saw fit to announce yesterday that uh, they're going to modernise the Australian financial system and this is apparently the things they do now to get productivity gains, Richard, because they can't mm. get them from anywhere else. Um, and how are they going to do that? They're going to phase out checks. Checks in the payment system have seven more years to go, uh, and they're going to be phased out by 2030. Now, we ha- are a party that's fought very hard to save cash. Checks and cash are not the same thing. Checks are a, a means of directing cash where it goes. Nevertheless, it's clear from the discussions we've had that this actually comes in the same category of closing down regional branches in the sense that you're you're forcing people who do rely on this form of of payment to give up something that's convenient to them just because it's going to be beneficial to the banks, Hmm. right? And and not even that beneficial to the banks in terms of cost savings or anything. It's minor. It's just all about this cash, this digital and, and ultimately cashless agenda. This thing where you know that we've been talking about on this show for yeah, a long time. The banks, the banks' attitude is, if we can take away the options, we can force people to go digital. Whereas we just had one example given to us, for instance, um, of if you're a grazier out in Whoop Whoop, mm. and um, someone comes to deliver something to you, you can pay them straight away. With a check, that 
that, that supplier leaves knowing he or she has been paid. They're happy. You're happy. It's all done. Um, the government and the banks will say, oh, just do it online. Well, I was in Cloncurry a few weeks ago, mm. as you know, Richard, and one of the themes that the, a lot of people in the hearing in Cloncurry pointed out, how often the internet just entirely fails mm-hmm. for days at a time. Um, uh, Don McDonald, the billionaire cattle baron, described how he's had to get in his helicopter and hover close to the mobile phone tower just to get reception to do his payroll on his computer for his mm. staff. Um, not everyone can have a helicopter, right? And so this, you know, if what's the big deal? If checks are still useful out in the regions where the digital infrastructure isn't reliable, why mm. force the issue, right? Someone in the bank is capable of receiving that check, doing the processing, checking the other person's bank account, and doing the transfer. Easy peasy. What are the banks trying to going to get rid of all staff and just have AI or something? Yeah. You know, what are check, they thinking here? Check people? GPT bots running the <laughs> bank there. Um, I mean, probably shouldn't laugh. That's probably exactly what they're there thinking. Would, there would be a-holes in the banks, Richard, that are thinking exactly that. What could we do with all this technology, right? Anyway, so it's not quite in the same category as cash, but, it's, but it is just an example of the callous disregard the government and the financial institutions have for Australians. And what I suggest people do in this regard is, especially if you are someone who knows this will affect you and you're not happy about it, we have this regional banking closures inquiry. It's there to look at all these issues. If you've made a submission, write to them and make a supplementary submission saying you're not happy with this decision and why and how it will affect you. If you haven't made a submission, although submissions are closed, this is the sort of thing that the committee has to pay attention to. So write to the committee. We'll put the contact details below. Send them an email and say, this is how this will affect me. I am not happy that I'm being pushed to do this. Because unless the government can guarantee I have, you know, a um, uh, 1,000 MBS uh, mm. internet reliable 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, I, out here in Whoop Whoop, this is better for me. Yeah. Right. Tell them the story. Yeah. Unless unless Jim Chalmers is going to sponsor your personal Starlink connection. No. That's right. That's right. <laughs> hey, that's an no. idea. There's an idea. Okay. So just we'll put the details for that below, and we'll keep um, following this as we go forward. I will say um, that when Jim Chalmers made this, and we're going to be talking about Jim a bit, when Jim Chalmers made this announcement yesterday, he actually did go out of his way to. Um, uh, reassure people that cash is safe and he and his government, the government, are watching the regional banking closures inquiry closely to look at all the issues around cash. Now, that's important. Even if you're cynical about politicians, and you should be most of the time, they've earned it, um, and he's only paying, paying lip service to cash, the fact that he has to pay lip service to cash is because of you. The people involved in our campaign that have forced this inquiry up in the first place that were involved in the campaign going back to 2019 to stop them banning cash transactions over $10,000. We have changed the perception of cash in Australia and the politicians, none of them are game to put their hand up as they did so cavalierly in 2019 and say, oh yeah, this is being phased out. They're not talking like that anymore, all right? Doesn't mean they're not plotting something, but they're not going to talk like that anymore. So that's a win. Plus the fact that the Treasurer of Australia in Sydney talked about the regional banking closures inquiry 
shows you what a big inquiry this has become. Everyone's paying attention. I can assure you the, the senators who are on the inquiry are getting more and more focused on it as an important inquiry and the outcome of it. And none of that would have happened if it wasn't for us working with Dale Webster, the independent journalist, and Martin North, um, and, the, and, and the leadership of, of um, uh, honest politicians in, in Parliament like Senator Jared Rennick to get this inquiry up in the first place. No one took it seriously at first. Now it's very serious. And that's something. Give yourself a pat on the back for that. Um, all right. Enough of the Mutual Admiration Society. Let's get into some serious uh, economic analysis. Pontius Pilate of Australia betrays the people. What we're talking about, Richard, is the interest rate hikes. So we have now just had the 12th interest rate hike in 13 weeks. An interest Months. Months, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Months. And the poor Australians who are being whacked by it, we'll put the graph up, you can see, um, they were 0.1% for a long time and then they've suddenly hiked up to now, within the space of just a month over a year, 4.1%. And this is on the biggest debts that people have ever had mm. on them. And you've got, a, you've got some stats there that just show you the impact this, that this is having on the people. Yeah, so uh, they're, they're blaming, oh, well, we have to keep putting the, the rates up because of wages, right? Even though they admit, yeah. the, the Reserve Bank's own economists admit wages aren't driving inflation, but the governor gets up there and keeps saying that they are. And, uh, but uh, as the, there's a couple of useful articles that were put out in the last couple of days based on government and bank um, figures by an outfit called Macro Business. Now, don't listen to them on China. They're no. completely bonkers on China, but on most other things, they're, they're pretty good. Um, macroeconomic analysis, as their name implies. So um, they're just pointing out that for starters, uh, well, okay, labour productivity, so the, the, the cost versus, versus uh, production economic output of, um, of the wage earning sector, yeah, that's just ticked below. That's just turned down again, just just lately. But it's been much stronger than capital productivity for the last twenty years. So companies have been making these profit. Wages haven't. Wages have barely moved in that period. Um, companies have been making all these profits off the back of the workers and not and not uh, paying them their share, basically. And it's something like well over what is it, sixty or seventy percent of the CPI measurement of inflation is uh, affected by company profits and none of it's effectively affected by wages. Yeah, because as he points out here, if you, your capital stock's consumed by unproductive housing mainly, these are not, you know, they're necessary overhead, yeah, they're not yeah. productive, they're not a productive asset. Um, and uh, blood-sucking foreign corporations stealing your energy <laughs> endowment, as he, as he says. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and failure of competition among these oligopolies in, the, in virtually every sector. So, of, of course, uh, multi-factor productivity overall is going to struggle in that, yeah. in that circumstance. But the other figures are from the other uh, things, and we'll put up some of the graphs showing this, how stark this is on the screen, but are from the first quarter national accounts released on Wednesday by the, yesterday by the uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics. Um, and what they go through is that uh, essential spending's gone up, um, discretionary spending has fallen, uh, so people are spending more money on the things that they have to have, um, energy predominantly, um, 
So the, the, the necessities are getting more expensive. Yeah, necessities are getting more expensive, so they're cutting back on everything yep. else to yep. pay for it. Um, the the uh, the housing the uh, household consumption uh, has has dropped as a result. The savings rate yep. um, is three point seven percent in the March quarter. It was eleven point three percent a year earlier. It's the lowest since two thousand and eight. The GFC. Mm. Um, uh, <clears throat> and what? while and while average uh, compensation wages has grown by 0.4% over the March quarter. It's dead flat year on year, and it's fallen 8.8% from June 2020. So three years ago, yeah. it was higher. Um, so it ain't wages, people. And as a result of all of this, uh, with the interest rate rises pushing mortgage repayments up because people are going you know, variable interest rates, yep. uh, housing debt servicing costs went up by 11.5% in a quarter. It's more than doubled over the past year um, and it's going to get worse because these things are months in the pipeline and not everyone's reset to variable rates yet. If that rate continues, 11.5% in a quarter, that's, that's 45% in a year. Yeah, and there were some figures that I don't have in front of me, but the other day they were saying that like um, just, the, just the average mortgage um, uh, is uh, like $600,000, so that's ones yep. that have been partly paid off included in that. Um, and so that's that's gone up by um, fifteen or so thousand dollars a year. But of course, there's people who have just signed up to a record yeah, low mortgage yeah. and have now reset to to um, the highest interest rates in in decades, highest repayments in decades because of the the sheer size of the mortgages, even though they're relatively low rates compared yeah. to what we had in the '90s. And there are people who are having to find an extra thirty-seven thousand dollars a year just to have, just not to get foreclosed on their house. That's more than double a reasonable rent, not, a, not, a, not an average rent. <laughs> average rents in Australia are crazy, but a re- that's more than double a reasonable rent as an extra payment if you're stuck in one of those mortgages. Yeah, and so this is where this, um, you hear the term mortgage prison yeah. comes in. Yeah, so just describe that for people. This is a real yeah. worry. Yeah, so if, you've, if you're one of these unfortunates who's taken out one of these... Um, these uh, record high house prices, record low interest rates, so an ultra-large mortgage at low, at, at very lax qualifying standards for that loan, and now you can't qualify to refinance it. Your house is probably worth less than it was when you bought it, so you're, in, you're underwater already. Um, and with the loan uh, serviceability requirements and the three percent buffer that's um, that's required by the uh, the bank regulator APRA, mm. um, plus the higher interest rates, um, you now cannot refinance your loan yep. um, to to get more favourable terms. So, so you're at the mercy of the bank you're stuck with. Yeah, you're a and prisoner so, of that bank. Yeah, and so you can't sell without going bankrupt. Uh, but you can't afford your mortgage either, and you can't refinance it unless your bank says you can. So it's up to them whether they, you know, put you back on interest only to keep the payments down. But of course, that extends the life of the loan, and you end up paying more over the long term. Whether they refinance it internally some other way, or whether they just foreclose on you and throw you out in the street, yep. and keep the house on their own books and sell it later when they hope the prices come up. And might I remind people that most of the people you're talking about, the mortgage prisoners, are the ones that took out loans after, um, like September, 2019. 
And then there was this massive burst of house prices in 2020-2020. Paradoxically, in the COVID years, the, mm. the house prices boomed. Um, but those people were actively, this is extraordinary, encouraged to borrow by the Assistant Treasurer of Australia, Michael Sucker, who said, go out and buy a home. Yep. And everyone who took his advice, they are most of those are the people that are in this terrible plight right now. And the people who listened to Reserve Bank Governor Dr. Philip Lowe when he said, we're not going to be raising interest rates until That's 2024. Right. That's, right. That's right. And... And now that that's happened, now they're in this trouble, what do the authorities say? Caveat emptor. Mm. You're on your own, you made your own choice, blah, blah, blah. Where, whereas it's not the job, I mean, the, the, there must be some accountability for these, for these authorities. Um, but that brings us to what we wanted to talk about in terms of the political side of this, Richard, because um, uh, yesterday, what's today? Thursday. <laughs> On, on uh, Tuesday afternoon, the Treasurer of Australia, Jim Chalmers, he was very, very concerned about these people that have just been hit by mm. this interest rate rise. Very concerned. Um, oh, yeah. he, he expressed that concern. We're going to play a little clip now of how concerned he actually was. But this is, in truth, really infuriating. So just have a look. Uh, today's decision takes uh, the cash rate to 4.10%. Uh, this will make life much harder for people with a mortgage. Uh, the Reserve Bank takes these decisions independently and as you know, uh, I do my best not to second guess them. Uh, I do expect that there will be a lot of Australians who will find this decision difficult to understand and difficult to cop. Uh, the Reserve Bank's job is to squash inflation without crunching the economy. Uh, and they will have lots of opportunities, of course, to explain and defend the decision that they've taken today. My job is different. Uh, I take responsibility for my part uh, of uh, managing the economy, and that's why the budget and our economic plan takes as its central focus, taking some of the edge off these cost-of-living pressures without adding to inflation. The budget was carefully calibrated to address pressure uh, where it has been the most acute, whether it's out-of-pocket health, health costs, uh, whether it is the uh, increasing rents that we're seeing in our economy or also persistently high energy prices as well. We've also gone out of our way to ensure uh, that we've made the biggest improvements to the budget at a time when inflation is at its worst. Uh, at the same time, as we've been dealing with the supply side issues in the economy, which have been neglected for too long, uh, because dealing with those supply side issues will make our economy more productive uh, and it will help it grow the right way out of all of this uncertainty. Now, the Governor has made it really clear, even in the last week, uh, that this rate rise is not because of the budget. Uh, he's been incredibly clear about this and he said, and I quote, I don't think that the budget is adding to inflation, it's actually reducing inflation. That's what Governor Lowe said in this building last week. He also said around the same time, and I'm quoting again, the budget didn't change our outlook for interest rates. He was incredibly clear. All right, so what you've just seen there is the Pontius Pilate of Australia washing his hands of your suffering, even though he can do something about it. So let's just go through it. First of all, the last thing you saw 
he was more concerned with avoiding mm. being blamed for these rate rises than he was for the people of Australia. You can't blame me. He even quoted Dr. Lowe to prove it wasn't his fault. These are not my fault. Um, so you're being crushed. He acknowledged you're being crushed at the opening, you know, but it's not my fault. Um, the second thing is he washed his hands of it by at the beginning by emphasising how independent the Reserve Bank... This is the, this is the Reserve Bank um, acting independently, right? The, the, do not blame the government for this. It's up to Philip Lowe, Dr Lowe to explain himself to the people why he's come to this decision because clearly Chalmers is acting unhappy with this interest rate rise. Mm. Politically, it's, it's actually getting bad for the government that these things keep happening. Um, but here's the truth. Here's the ultimate part of the Pontius Pilate thing. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, mm -hmm. right? He had the power <laughs> to save Jesus Christ. He was the Roman governor. Oh, wash my hands of this. Jim Chalmers has the power to overrule the treasurer's decision. The Reserve Bank. Sorry, the Reserve Bank's decision. Yeah. He's the treasurer. It's in law. We've been, we've been talking about this for the last um, month or two in Australia because of the, the RBA review. The law says the treasurer can overrule the monetary decisions of the, of the RBA. How concerned is he really mm. for the impact this is happening? having? Yeah, looks to me like about a whole Nile River's worth of crocodile tears. Oh, 100%. And, and it's not just that, he's, that he has that power and not using it. He has agreed to give it up. Yep. This, is, this is the RBA Review's number one recommendation is that the, they should, the government should legislate to rid the treasurer of the power to overrule the RBA. And as we talked about in a press release yesterday, but also in the last few months, this is a wicked, wicked betrayal of Labor's own legacy. Because the last time the public felt this kind of crushing debt burden in these terms, this is worse than the high interest rates of the 90s, of the 80s, sorry, because, you know, the, the debt was much smaller, right? That was crushing enough for people. I've had plenty of people tell me what it's like. This is a much smaller interest. They're not even normalised yet. 4.1% still can't be yeah. considered normal interest rates. We used to get told, we put a, the, the book that we put out in 2001, How to Survive the Depression, and we said, well, we'd have a government bank that would lend yeah. that 4%, and everybody said, that's nuts. You won't make any money. It'll go broke. <laughs> right? so, yeah, exactly. It was, it was seen as really bizarre. So we've had these record low rates, and the, and the debts are the biggest in history. Um, and so the, these households, these mortgage prisoners, et cetera, are being absolutely crushed by it. Plus there's the mortgage cliff, that we've talked about many times, which is when all of the mortgages reset, mm. right? And that, that has implications not just for those households having to pay much higher interest rates, but for the economy if they mm. start to default, right? A, a, a Constantine, a knock-on effect um, on the economy, all because this treasurer, this government, refuses to use its power the way its predecessor, Ted Theodore, fought very hard in the Great Depression of the 1930s to save the Australian people then who were being crushed under 30% unemployment, right? Couldn't eat. And he wanted to alleviate their suffering by taking on the bank, which was pushing austerity, and making the bank serve the people instead by putting out investment into public works and into agriculture to create jobs and give people some income so they can be able to find, buy some food. And he wasn't able to do that because he had no power to direct the bank. And tw the, the, the Labor Party fought hard on this issue, and 15 years later, in 1945, 
Ben Chifley legislated in the 1945 Banking Act that the Treasurer has the power to overrule the decisions of the RBA. That's been in law ever since. It's never been used, right? Nope. So it's not like it's a it's not like it's an abusive power. It has never been used in 76 years. But their excuse for wanting to get rid of it, they said, is because it could be used because they're actually worried that parties like us are saying it should be used mm-hmm. and they're trying to get rid of it in that way. Yep. Right? And you've had, again, you mentioned earlier, uh, Senator Rennick asking them and Nick McKim from Nick, the Greens, yep. why aren't you using this power? Asking the, asking the government, asking uh, Dr. Lowe. Dr. Lowe. Uh, they, you have these powers, asking Michelle Bullock, the deputy governor, and who admitted that, yes, the government could tell us to do that, could tell us to literally create money to spend on public works, and we would have to do that. Yeah. They all know that this is there on the books, and they'll just sit on their hands and say, independence, Reserve Bank independence, yeah. you know, this is the way the system works, just suck it up, you know. And we'll do, we'll do more on this, Richard, but this so-called independence, what they, if, if they... If they give up this power, which even Paul Keating has criticised the idea of giving up yeah. this power, and he um, he said he he had to threaten to use it, yeah, back in the back in the eighties or um, early nineties for for his agenda back then. Now, uh, but they, but, it, but it's never officially been used. But it's just right. the fact that it existed. Yeah, and and because it's not Doctor Lowe who's accountable to the people of Australia. It's Dr. Chalmers. Yep, and he's, he's a doctor, a doctor too. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Chalmers is the one who's accountable to the people of Australia. He's the one that you can express your will to, and that's one of the reasons they're trying to give this up. They're taking banking out of democratic accountability, and when they do that, then that puts our central bank under total effective control of the Bank for International Settlements. And that's the real globalist agenda, right? Having, having the real power in, an, in a country, the money power, under that central global control. Now... Just to so, what could they do? I want to make this point. We said, like we we already pointed out, the you know the governments that are blamed for the the plight these people are in because, you know, like Michael Sucker encouraging people to get loans, etc., um, buy housing. But there's a more general reason they're to blame, which is over the last two decades, Labor, the Liberals, and the RBA have all worked together to create the property bubble in the first place, which is the source of this massive debt. Right? It's the source of it. So now we've got this, and, and to prop it up, they pumped out free money, right? Mm-hmm. Now we've got inflation. And trust us, the, the actual inflation is worse than the official figures because the official figures always understate inflation. So what could they do to address inflation without crushing households? And, you know, because what, I'm sure most people are familiar by now, Richard, with this line. It's in the media all the time. I watch more of the news than you do. You read the papers. Um, but the line is, the Reserve Bank has one tool, mm-hmm. interest rates. Right? It's actually not true. They don't just have one tool. So we put out a release calling for the Reserve Bank, for the government, not the Reserve Bank, the government is the accountable entity here, Jim Chalmers, to do three things with the Reserve Bank. Take the RBA over, take it back under government control. It's, the, it's one of the few government-owned central banks in the world. Use it as a national bank and do three things to address this crisis now because... It is an acute crisis, not just for the households, but for our economy. One, tackle inflation differently. And what they used to do before deregulation, and this is what we blame Keating for, what they used to do prior to that was not just raise interest rates every time to smash inflation and crush the people who are already in debt. 
They controlled the amount of money being pumped into the economy, which is what fuels inflation, mm. while the RBA had the power to say to the private banks, stop lending in this unproductive area, stop lending in this area of speculation, stop it. Or here's how much you're lending, you're only allowed to lend that much in that area. Yep. Here's an important area we need lending for. You're allowed to lend in that area. Yep. And yep. put floors and ceilings on the interest rates that they could lend into different sectors. Yep. All this stuff. Exactly. They, they had a. They had. They still had those. Our point is they still had those powers. They just don't use them. The powers were never written out of law. This is the sort of stuff they want to do now that we've been highlighting it. But they could be addressing inflation in a very different way than they're doing right now. In a more controlled way. In a in a way that makes sure that. Households survive. You 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 provide extra resources to the supply chain difficulties and to address those, so that that comp- component of inflation can come down. You you tackle you throw out the craziness and just tackle the energy price stuff, which is a big mm-hmm. part of inflation as well. Throw out the policies that are causing that and and actually bring those prices down. The government could do that, even including through renationalisation mm-hmm. in many in many respects. Right? There's lots of things they can do, but actually address the issue without crushing households. Um, second, and this is really significant, and we we've been talking about this over the last few years. But this is something that, that, that is in the government's power to do. If you're trapped, for the people that are trapped in these mortgage prisons, the government could actually rescue them. By using the Reserve Bank to fund, to go to the private banks and say, we will fund you to restructure those mortgages, Mm. right? And the Reserve Bank has all the wealth of the country behind it. And the private banks, now you would do it under really strict conditions so that this is not something the private banks profiteer from. Yeah. Yeah. So you're essentially having the Reserve Bank refinance the loans using the private banks as its agency. So yeah. it's not funding in the sense of just paying for stuff, but it's it's a and and when banks, you know, have when they've done this sort of governments have done this sort of thing, you know, for one example is you don't make the loans transferable or secure, you know, let them be yeah. securitized and all of that stuff. They 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 stay strictly where they are. Now, one of the people who's a champion of this in parliament is Bob Catter. Mm. In 2014, Bob Catter put up a bill um, written by uh, who uh, drafted or, or assisted by a, a financial expert named Dr. Mark McGovern from QUT for a Reserve Bank Reconstruction Board mm. dedicated to resolving debt crises in uh, rural loans, right? Because there was a rural debt crisis then. That's when the, the West Australian wheat belt farmers were, mm. were all um, getting crushed under you know, lots of defaults over there, etc. And um, Bob Catter gave a speech about this and he pointed out that when he was in the Queensland state government back in the 80s, he was responsible for the state bank that Queensland had then and they did this to rescue the sugarcane farmers mm. that were in the middle of a crisis and they took over a whole bunch of loans from sugarcane farmers, they restructured them and he said only out of the thousands and thousands they, they took over, only one cane farmer ended up being foreclosed on because they were genuinely unviable. Mm-hmm. Everyone else was able to be rescued, put on their feet and kept being productive, right? So he has a real sense of this. That's why I put up this bill in 2014. Um, Mark McGovern points out, and he's, he, um, he's just written his, uh, a submission to the Regional Bank Closures Inquiry, actually, where he references some of this. This sort of approach should be applied, back, funded by the Reserve Bank, to all the mortgage debt in Australia as well, not just the 
not just the, uh, uh, the rural debts, right? And it can do it. And you can actually, because you've got to be, you know, if you're in the government, you've got to be thinking now about everything we've just said, how these people were caught unawares, they were lured into this, etc. Their family lives now are just absolute misery and they live in mortal dread of the first Tuesday of each month when they hear that they're going to be whacked again and there's literally nothing they can do about it except default. And, and maybe they are going to default and you think, well, okay, they had that option. But you know what happens if enough of them default? It ceases being their problem, becomes your problem, mm-hmm. right? Because our banks will crash on the back of enough defaults like happened in America in 2008. And then all bets are off, yep. right? This could be handled um, uh, in, a, in a, 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 a deliberative, calm way now, but to provide relief for the suffering, right? Mm-hmm. That's what the Reserve Bank could, funding, could fund. It has enormous capacity to do things like that. Um, and the third thing, Richard, is house prices are just way too expensive. We've got to, we've got to take the, the families of, we've got to take the households of, of Australia who think they're all millionaires because of their house price. We've got to take away the heroin and get them to go <laughs> cold turkey. There's no solution to this. Yeah. This is crazy. They've got to come down. And one way they can come down, one way they can become more affordable is we need a lot more housing built by the government, social housing, and the Reserve Bank could fund that too. Yeah. And when you talk about social housing, it's not just you know, low-cost housing for poor people. As important as that is, it's, for, it's housing for everybody. And it's ironic that the best case of this in Australia, even before the Commonwealth Bank got involved in the, in the um, 40s through, for about 10 years, yeah. from 1945 when Chifley got the Banking Act passed um, and made these deals with the states to, to co-finance these um, social housing projects. But it was a conservative government in South Australia yes. that set the bar for this thing and yeah. set it very bloody high. You know, they built entire towns and and kept the house prices down and they had, you know, wages. And you get some of these, you know, just doctrinaire socialist types who complain about, oh, they did that to suppress wages. Well, okay, maybe, <laughs> but it worked for everybody because you don't need as high a wage if your cost of living is in the, is, you oh, know, exactly. way exactly. down. And so they built, like, the whole town of Elizabeth um, and the other one, what's it called, um, around the ways, but these satellite cities to um, Adelaide where they set up the new industries. They bought the land, they built the houses, they built the factories, they built the roads, they built everything, this housing authority. Compare, can contrast that to what the Greens are rightly fighting the government on with yeah. this Housing Australia Future Fund, which is to put $10 billion in the stock market and hope the returns are enough to build a few houses each year. Yeah, I mean, you might as well take it to the dog track. Well, we don't have those anymore, but... You know what I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Because take it to Crown Casino, you'd probably be better off. So even so, you got the South Australian example, and the other one is is that you referenced uh, is what happened after World War Two. Ben Chifley used the Commonwealth Bank um, to fund state housing commissions. So they would loan the money to state housing commissions to build all this public housing. My mum grew up in one. I used to, you know, remember really well going and visiting my grandmother. She lived there. She lived there her whole life in this in this housing commission home in Stall in Victoria. Um, and that was continued actually under Menzies until uh, 1954 in that form. That is called the golden age of social housing or public mm-hmm. housing in Australia. 90,000 homes at a time our population was much smaller. 90,000 homes in 10 years. That's more than anything Elbow's offering to. I think they're talking about 30,000 homes in a decade or whatever. This, this was how you could really address the issue then, right? Mm. Um, the RBA has the capacity to fund that. And remember, these people, you live in housing commission, you're still paying rent. 
right? Yeah. There's an income coming back. It can, it, 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 it's, not, um, it's not absolutely free money. It's just using the capacity. Of, think about, the, think about a, a national bank as like the, the terms you get from your mum and dad if you borrow from them, mm. right? Your mum and dad aren't going to screw you over. But if they're smart, they'll tell you to pay them back and maybe even for your mental health, pay back a little bit of interest. They might do that as well. Maybe they won't. Um, it's up to them, right? But they're not going to screw you over. And they're using, they think, well, we have the capacity to absorb um, this request, right? Mm. Because it's going to help them and we're happy that it's helping them. A national bank functions similarly like that. It's not there to make the biggest profit in the world. So it says, okay, we're backed by the government. We have debt, Credit is a powerful thing. We have capacity to be flexible on the terms, flexible on the interest rates, flexible on the payments, on the repayments, still try and make sure they're sound loans. But if the few that go bad, we can absorb that, right? But the end result is more um, investment out in the community where it matters. Mm. And that's what ultimately brings down inflation and all those sort of things. Yep, exactly. Makes people's lives better. <laughs> all right. So uh, we put out a press release on that this week. You can look it up on our um, uh a website, but this relates to the Jim Chalmers question of losing, giving up his powers over the over the RBA, and we are on the lookout for that bill that he mm. said will be coming to do that because we're going to fight that very very hard. It's not up there yet, but watch this space. We'll keep you updated. Okay, Richard, a couple of couple other stories before we go. Um, the government's Captain Renault charade over the PwC scandal, and right now. I kid you not, the Australian government is acting just like Captain Renault from Casablanca. Have a look. Everybody is to leave here immediately. This cafe is closed until further notice. Clear the room at once. How can you close me up? On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. Now, what do I mean by that? <laughs> so this is, as soon as this PwC scandal blew up, Richard, I'm watching the major parties because it's always, it always comes down to major parties. And I'm getting more and more incredulous over this routine. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. This is shocking. Yep. Right? And then the other, and then the other big consulting firms also profess their shock. Oh, like, we're so shocked. KPMG, this is shocking. This is terrible. How could this happen? Except, and I think I made this terrible comparison on this show before, PwC's sheer arrogance in the way they did this shows you that you can see how they did it. So um, just describe the actual crime, right? All right. So in 2013-14, yeah. the, the Liberal government is developing the multinational anti-avoidance law, as it's known. Um, yep. It has a longer official name. Uh, to stop what were before then legal tax-dodging practices by multinational corporations, especially U.S. tech companies. So here's PwC's top international tax expert gets brought into this advisory group, signs a secrecy agreement, non-disclosure agreement, and all the rest of it, gets all this inside information, and immediately deploys who knows how many of his colleagues, gives them the information to, uh, to develop strategies to get around this law the day, literally the day it's announced. Yeah, budget yeah. budget uh, 2014. 20, uh, yeah. Um, when they bring this thing in and it comes into effect in 2016 and yep. they've already, and they're, they're already set up to dodge it. Yeah. Um, and then, and then uh, by 2018, it was clear what had happened, but 
as we discussed last week, the laws then didn't allow the tax office to actually reveal yeah. what it should have been able to reveal. Yeah, the, ta- the tax office officials could go to jail for telling the treasury that they were being, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that they were having a crime committed against them. And so five years after that, it's now a scandal, mm. right? And I'm thinking, hang on, hang on, hang on. This, this, because the first thing that struck me is just the sheer um, uh, arrogance of PwC. They were acting with impunity. They, they, when you see something that's so blatant, the people who are doing it, they, they just think that they're untouchable, right? Mm. And the, the terrible comparison I made is to that um, video, Collateral Murder, that Julian Assange released um, of the war crime in Baghdad where the helicopter mm. gunship shoots down the people. And you can, one of the telling things is you can see that the, the, the pilots, the people on the gunship, they don't feel they've done anything wrong that'll get them into any trouble, mm-hmm. right? This is what acting with impunity is like. And so that tells you there's a culture there. And what we're seeing now is they're trying to just say, oh, this is, uh, they're trying to cauterize it and say there's a, there's a rogue element or whatever in PwC and we're mm. all shocked. We're all so shocked. But these are the same major parties that have given the PwCs and EYs and KPMGs and Deloitte's of this world this massive takeover of our functions of government. Mm. Right? They're outsourcing billions, literally billions of dollars a year of the public service Exactly um, to these to these criminals. So this week we have taken aim at this in the Australian Alert Service, Richard, because I remember around that time I was reading a book. Ah. Now the book is actually very good. I um, I have mixed feelings about the author Owen Jones, but this is a British book by a British author Owen Jones. He's not the worst. He's certainly not the best. But the book was pretty good. It's called The Establishment and How They Get Away with It. And this is just one book that was written in the UK in the last 10 years mm. by that, you know, some other, there was one that um, was um, uh, um, Richard Brooks wrote, Bean Counters, The Triumph of the Accountants and How They Broke Capitalism. Mm. Um, there's Treasure Islands. Yeah, Nicholas Shackson. Nicholas Shackson. Tax Havens and the Men Who Stole the World. Which you can, um, if you don't have time to read the book, get on YouTube and, and look up the, uh, the, the documentary called The Spider's Web, which is about that, and it's a, that they do a pretty good job. But in his book in 2014, uh, Owen Jones is talking about this exact problem and how in the UK, this, is, this was then, this is the same year as the scandal happened in Australia, right? Mm. We're only finding out about it now, nine years ago. This was a matter of open public discussion in the UK at the time, such that the Public Accounts Committee of the UK Parliament held an inquiry, brought all these tax experts from the, the big four accounting firms, audit, auditors, to the inquiry, made them answer the questions, etc., and put out a report about it. Let me read you the quotes from the report from 2014 in the UK, this Public Accounts Committee report. The report explains that large accountancy firms are in a powerful position in the tax world and have a very good understanding of how HMRC, which is his then her, now it's His Majesty's Revenue Commission, which means the tax office, the British tax office, have a very good understanding of how HMRC applies tax law, which they can use to advise clients on which arrangements HMRC is likely to challenge. Through their work in advising government on changes to legislation, they have a detailed knowledge of UK tax law and the insight to identify loopholes in new legislation quickly. 
The report notes it was, quote, very concerned by the way that the four firms appear to use their insider knowledge of legislation to sell clients advice on how to use those rules to pay less tax, end quote. That's in a British Parliament report in 2014. The same, exactly the same time PwC is doing that here and our crowd are acting all shocked. Oh, this is so shocking. No, they're covering their butts. 100% they are covering their butts because this is a a far, far deeper problem than this, this scandal, which is the tip of the iceberg. And as I said the other day, there's a reason... When you, if you follow this on the news, note the role of Senator Barbara Pocock. There's a reason that it's a Green that's leading the charge on this. You'll see lots of Labor people starting to make comments and you know try and sound the mm. same, etc. Right? But don't be fooled by that. It's only since the crossbench of the Parliament has become bigger and bigger, and that's all. Like I have. I have quite a lot of respect for all the crossbench, right? Mainly because, in my experience, and as you know, I do a lot of lobbying in Parliament, they're the ones who aren't captured by vested interests. Mm. The two parties are. And you can have some reasonable discussions with them, but at a certain point, you come up against this brick wall, right? Because it doesn't, the reason doesn't apply. They've got things, they've got interests they're indebted to, right? And they yeah. can't go there. These guys are, and they're ripping off the mask on this kind of corruption. Yeah. And that's not any slight on, you know, like Deborah O'Neill from the Labor Party, for instance, who's... Doing her best. She's, yeah, yeah, she's doing the best she can within the Labor Party and working very well with, with um, Senator Pocock on this. But, yep. um, but yeah, and of course, um, Pocock's also an expert on this. She's a um, university professor in her previous job, so... Expect there to be a lot, a lot more come out of this. And, and just be on the lookout for it, because we've got to make sure that they don't use this shocked charade to... Like I said, just cauterise it, make it out to be a handful of people at PwC in 2014, and that's never happened before, and it'll never happen again. Rubbish. That part is absolute rubbish. If this, if this is a quote from a British Parliament report in 2014, okay, Richard, a little bit of time we've got left. We've got some an interesting briefing from you. The Cold War Tyrannosaur influencing the push for war on China, and you've done a really good article in the Alert this week on the how the Nine Group. The Nine Entertainment Group, um, the not Channel Nine and its newspapers, uh, they are outdoing News Corp in pushing propaganda. We'll just this came about because of the the sixty minutes story a few weeks ago. We'll just play the opening of that story, which is a shameless pr- promo for the U.S. war machine. It's, it's here. Have a look. <laughs> It might sound like twisted logic, but military forces everywhere argue the greater the firepower they possess, the greater the chance of maintaining peace. In other words, massive weaponry is the best deterrent to war. Right now, that theory is being tested like never before, and much of it is happening in Australia's backyard. The United States wants the world, and particularly China, to know of its increasing presence in the Indo-Pacific. And, as you're about to see, its military in full flight puts on a spectacular show. I hope that war doesn't come, but if it comes, we're going to do our part. 
when I'm watching that, I'm thinking, hang on, is this is this the opening of Top Gun three? Yeah, right. The the music, the the, the slow mo, all this kind of stuff. Yep. Greatest military force in the world. Anyway, tell us what you've um, looked into uh, and why we've been looking at the Nine Media Group in yeah. that sense. So for a long time now, and our colleague um, Melissa Harrison wrote articles on this uh, a couple of years ago. The the favoured recipients of ASIO leaks and the guys who are always, the one guy in particular, um, Mr Nick McKenzie yep. um, from 60 Minutes and who writes for The Age and Sydney Morning Herald newspaper. Who, by the way, is trying to milk his only defamation win of yeah. the Ben Robert Smith case, whereas everything he's written about China, has, which has been a pack of lies, he has lost every defamation case against him on that. Yep. For good reason. And as did another of his colleagues who's an ASIO advisor now, John Garner. John, yep and got shredded by the judge, but we don't have time to get yep. into that. Yep. Um, so we're looking at nine and going, why is this happening? Because yep. of course, the you know, there's all, all sorts of useful idiots all over the media for the, for the intelligence agencies and the defense honchos and the American lobby to push these things through to whoever they whoever will listen. But why nine in particular? Because the warmonger roller was always News it Corp. Was, yeah, everybody says Murdoch, Murdoch Media, Murdoch, 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 Murdoch. And, and, they're doing the more balanced reporting on <laughs> stuff. They're still nuts, yeah, 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 a lot yeah. of in most cases, but compared to nine, and it's nine that that Paul Keating is attacked because yeah. they're just so because just this shocking. was when this was Fairfax, particularly yeah. the newspapers when they were the part of Fairfax Media. This was a bastion of the of the old left, the the ones who questioned the. Yeah. They weren't just blindly loyal to our great and powerful allies, right? Like the Americans yeah. and the British, um, they. They opposed Vietnam, you know, the escalation in Vietnam and our involvement in that, all of these things. And so why, is the, why are these left-wing media supporting this war drive? <laughs> and so, of course, you can't, you know, we're not a fly on the wall, don't know who said what to who and exactly who's making what decisions. But you can draw some pretty, some pretty uh, convincing sort of inferences from the, uh, where, who these people are. So yeah. you've got... The, the current chairman of the Nine Group um, is Peter Costello, um, the former treasurer um, and uh, radical free market, you know, yep. communism's the devil, all of these guys. Well, one of his, by his own description, major intellectual influences and also his father-in-law is, was, he's recently deceased a few years ago, at the age of 90, a gentleman by the name of Peter Coleman. And this is our Cold War Tyrannosaur. He is, because he's extinct, but <laughs> <laughs> yep. he's still there, still there in the, uh, in the milieu, the cultural, uh, intellectual milieu. So uh, this guy was, uh, he was a state, at different times, a, yep. a New South Wales state and federal liberal MP. He was also from 1967 uh, through with a brief hiatus in the late 70s, early 80s, um, all the way through till 1990, the editor of a magazine called Quadrant, yep. which is still going. Yep. Um, I don't read it, so I don't know what its general quality is. Um, but it's a classical liberal, anti-communist. You know, it, it, it always tried to appeal to the, or not always, but in general, these kind of, they try to appeal to the anti-communist left. Yeah, right? and justified... But also, um, I've, I've seen it a lot. I used to read it. Um, they're the people who justified our actions in the Cold War, the Vietnam War. Yeah, yeah, they were propagandising yeah. for the Vietnam War and yeah. our involvement in it in the mid-60s, just before Coleman yeah. took over. What, they, uh, what came out 
the year before was that this thing was created not just it was it was it was an organ of the Congress for Cultural Freedom. This thing set up in 1950 in Europe, supposedly to you know because um, fascism's bad, Freedom. but communism's worse, and so we rehabilitate these reformed fascists, fascists. and 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 call them liberals. Uh, and we promote them through these magazines, 20 of them around the world, including Quadrant. Yeah. It subsisted on CIA money yep. for, for 15, 17 years. Um, it, uh, it got exposed by the New York Times in 1966 that the CIA was, that the CCF was the CIA. The CIA. It was a CIA front, basically. It was a CIA front group. They were laundering money through various foundations. Um, so that whole thing sort of collapsed over the next decade or so, um, but the damage was done. The, you know, most of these publications folded by the late by the late nineties, but Quadrant's still going. So so Coleman had this role, but he's a bit of a straight. That's the reason we're calling him the Tyrannosaurus because yeah. he had a strange relationship with the CIA, right? Mm. So he came in after the CIA funding was exposed, and he said about in his own by his own in his own terms to rehabilitate the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Yeah. Uh, this, again, global CIA propaganda construct by saying, well, on the one hand, you know, the CIA wasn't that involved anyway. It just, it just gave them money. And, yeah. um, but he criticised, he wrote what became the sort of semi-official history of this organisation in the process of his research trying to rehabilitate it. The CIA wouldn't give him the documents he asked for, um, interestingly. But um, he, he criticised the CIA for being too sympathetic to the left. Can you imagine? So that, so what's the, this, this guy is, is so hardcore, he's like to the right of Genghis Khan. Yeah, thereabouts. Right. Um, so so uh, he said, yeah, the CIA is too friendly to the left. The original editor of it, um, uh, a guy, uh, James McCauley, he's this notorious, he was too anti-communist for the CIA because yeah. he was spoiling, the, the whole point was to be unobtrusive, right? Yeah. Suck the lefties. Uh, suck the lefties in. You can't go around bashing the left and expect to appeal to them. So, um, anyway, so yeah, you've got this guy editing this thing for um, twenty-five years, basically, or almost that, um, and writing all this, you know, all this Cold War propaganda all that time, publishing it. Um, his son-in-law, and from part of that same, again, intellectual milieu, generally. Is Peter Costello, who's been the head of uh, Channel Nine, the chairman of Channel Nine, since this anti-China bent started yeah. in 2017. So let's let's jump to the present though, because there's um, we're going to talk about this Costello's connections mm -hmm. through his father-in-law to the, what we have long identified as an overt American influence channel into the top level of Australian politics, and it's called the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue. And I want to play a little quick clip of Paul Keating in 2016, the night Donald Trump got elected, he was on ABC 7.30, he actually welcomed Trump's election. He's talking about how this might lead to some geopolitical changes, he was hoping, um, like better relations with Russia, better relations with China. Um, unfortunately, he didn't. Anyway, so he was talking about that. But he made a point about the Australian-American relationship in that this is when he first got our attention on these mm. issues. So just listen to him and what he talks about with this Australian-American leadership dialogue. We've got to this sort of almost sort of crazy position now where the American alliance, instead of simply being a treaty, where, where the United States is obliged to consult with us in the event of adverse strategic circumstances, 
it has now taken on a reverential sacramental quality. It's like a sacrament. You know, and this, I'm not talking about simply the government. I'm talking about some people on the, on the Labor side as well. You know, there, there's, a, there's a view. We, there was a thing called the, the American, Australian-American Dialogue, which, by the way, I've never attended, which is a sort of a cult thing. It's gone on for years. And I don't know what the Americans put in the drinking water, but whenever the Australians come back, they're all bowing and scraping and going on. Yeah, so here's what he says. This is, he saw how this took over the mindset even of Labor politicians, mm. right? He never went there. And if you look at the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue website, you can see the, the gallery there. You can see lots of photos of prominent politicians. Including uh, Mr. Albanese. Including Mr. Albanese attending the events every year, right? They alternate between Australia and Thingo. So Peter Costello is connected to the leadership of that dialogue. Yeah, because the guy who set it up, the uh, former Coca-Cola Amatel executive, Philip Scanlon, well, he was, he, was, uh, he was Peter Coleman's chief of staff. So he took up the torch. Yeah. When the, when the Congress for Cultural Freedom collapsed and all the, and the Australian branch of it, and then the Cold War ends and he, you wrote an article about it a couple of, uh, about, uh, what, late last year. He talked about how he uh, woke up in a cold sweat from nightmares about how Washington would, had declared independence from Canberra. <laughs> We're going to leave us down here alone with these, you know, it's the yellow peril thing. How paranoid do you have to be of Asians to think that Oh, if, if America decides to focus on its own backyard and doesn't spend, send as many warships to the Asia-Pacific, we're toast. Yeah. Never mind that US military intelligence itself says that China is not a military yeah, threat exactly. and there's all these... It does, it's not set up to be, apart so, from its missiles. So the dialogue was started over 30 years ago now. 1992. So Phil Scanlon's a bit old. He's now been replaced. Yeah. And he's, who's his replacement? Yeah, well, he's still, on the, he's still uh, in the mix. Chairman but, or something, um, yeah. yeah, but the CEO of it... Uh, is Tony Smith, the former Speaker of the House, member of Parliament from 2001 till he retired last year and immediately walked into this job. And he was Peter Costello's Chief of Staff. That's right. In, from, from the mid-90s until he got into Parliament himself in 2001. So these are not incidental connections. This is, this is the chairman of the nine net media organisation that's been beating the drums for war like crazy. He is intimately tied in with this American influence operation and through his father-in-law, who even co-wrote his, bio, his memoirs or something, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, a, a, a Cold War tyrannosaur <laughs> associated with the CIA, that's who's influencing our media. They, were, they used to be the alternative to news. Now they're worse than news, than Murdoch, right? Yep. So that's who you're getting fed the, the, the lies about um, that are pushing us to war. Anyway, um, Richard... Thank you very much. We better leave it at that. Uh, thanks to the viewer for tuning in. Remember to look at the links below and tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.